Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Yeah, like I said, joining us tonight, we have several writers from... Oh, this is MFA program. Please join me in giving tonight's readers a extremely warm welcome. friends, family, writers, readers, students, teachers, whoever you are, to the Otis Cloudfart Design MFA Writing Program Class of 2018 Student Reading. My name is Kyle Raymond Fitzpatrick, and I'm a first-year MFA student working in fiction. I have the fabulous task of guiding us through tonight's reading, where eight of our 2018 MFA candidates will be sharing work created during their two years at Otis. We're a very diverse little group, and you'll be hearing from writers whose work stretch across various practices from fiction to nonfiction, poetry, to multimodal works, and any combination in and around said styles. For a little background, the MFA writing program was founded in 2000 and is a folding in of artistic and writing practices, a little literary haven framed within the context of an art school, which, if you ask me, is super important because many people, even writers, even myself, tend to forget that writing is in fact, quote unquote, making art, to borrow a phrase from Otis alum John Baldessari. That's one of the reasons why Otis is so great, because the work of writers is set against disciplines like painting and sculpture and other studio crafts. The program has welcomed writers from all over the country and is unique for including one-on-one mentoring, team-taught workshops, and student and faculty design colloquia to represent the interests of everyone participating. While students are of various backgrounds and interests, as you will see, we take pride in our distinguished and diverse roster of professors who specialize in various modes of writing who boast accomplishments ranging from award-winning novels to intersectional civic art activations to translating, to translating and publishing rare international texts. The MFA Writing Program also hosts the free bi-weekly Visiting Writers series, where superstar writers of all genres share work and speak with students in a very intimate, not to mention free, forum. This year, we've had the pleasure of featuring a variety of fantastic writers, like Amelia Gray, Javier Zamora, Luis J. Rodriguez, Zinzi Clemens, Auburn Finkelstein, Louise Sandhaus, and more. We're also the proud publishers of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry under the Otis Books outfit, a small press for exciting new writing with a focus on translation and text of and about Los Angeles. You might be able to find a few of our works on Skylight Shelves, which, by the way, uh, are designed and typeset by MFA, gradu- MFA writing students. Anyway. Let us begin the reading to be regaled with writing that graduating students have been working on. First, we have Nicole Bradford. Nicole is a poet born and raised in Los Angeles whose work seeks to discuss ideas around societal fetishization, deconstruction, and policing of the black slash brown female body. She's a graduate of the University of Arizona's Creative Writing undergraduate program and plans to pursue a PhD in creative writing. Tonight, she'll share poetry from her thesis, a work titled Shower Talks, where she explores the female body as it re-enters and ex- examines experiences with men, traumatic and not sexual and not. The work is particularly prescient, coming into creation before and in parallel to cur- current movements like hashtag me too and time's up, presenting these issues in personal and sometimes abstract lyric poetry. Let's welcome Nicole. Thank you all for coming. You look good, girl. (laughs) My head foams with thoughts of men and their hands, coiled brown body spattered with water, cold melancholy dripping down the spirals of his beard. I can't kiss it away fast enough. That's where I die, he says, in the pauses. I would preserve you forever, he says, in my art. I know he is talking only of my body, not knowing the ways this lacquered thing has already been preserved. A bit of fauna kept his trophy on the walls of many. Learn to read your poetry, he says, 
like every phrase has to break you open to get out of your mouth. I don't have to conjure any falsehoods, he says, to compliment you. We are tidal-locked, each to the other. I watch the movement of a mouth around crack and open, movement of lips around pussy. Love, it says. You've got a devil in you, he says. I can feel them swimming behind my eyes. The freeway swells, meets the downtown skyline in a rapture of metal and concrete. You're too good a woman for this, he says. I tell myself to believe him, and my car rises above the endless glittering face of the port of Los Angeles. Do you not feel desirable, he asks? From the Latin, desiderare, wanted or wished for as being an attractive, useful, or necessary course of action. This hourly necessity to press my hands together until they begin to shake. Your poems need texture, he says, his hands in my hair. Everything I do should make you miss me, he says. Laughter bursts from my throat like a child's feet through the surface of a pool. These talks are my therapy sessions, he says, his fingers dragging over the skin of my thigh, his mouth full of me. How many others, he asks. Only you, I say, my palms straining against each other. My head groans with thoughts of men and their eyes, my foreign body reflected in them. You are, you should, you're too love, they say. I had held on to you, I say, as a place of possible return. So his hand moves from waist to hip, an old, warm predation. I don't want to hear the song in your poems, he says. I want the scream. The pitch of my body rounding the high curve of the 405 North, 105 West interchange. Each time I am taking the turn wider and wider. She is very pretty, a friend says. I know, he says. I might have to do something about that. Be careful what you tell her, he says. She's fragile. Yes, and I am warm in this fragility. I have woven it, wrapped the length of it around my shoulders, a skein of feeling and empathy. We are at my favorite beach, above the quiet curve of the marina. The sky is soft and cold. You don't fuck your friends, he says. I press him into the sand, sit and wait for the tide to come and claim the body. There is nothing I can do to make this better, but if I do not begin, that will make it worse. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome our next reader, Olivia Bathford Pritzker. Olivia is originally from New York and has a BA in psychology and comparative literature from Brandeis University. A short story writer, Olivia's work seeks to untangle and dissect relationships, female identity, and the history of storytelling, cautionary tales, and fairy tales in order to reflect and collapse the contemporary world. Tonight, she will be reading a section from her short story, The Fortunate Ones, a work, a work pulled from her thesis collection titled Hunting Season. Olivia's stories often straddle the worlds of the real and the imagined, using elements of the fantastic to analyze humanity at its best and worst. Let's welcome Olivia. Thanks, Kyle. You also look good. <laughs> I'll be reading about the first quarter of the story. At a small wooden table in the back of her tent, the fortune teller consults her tarot deck. She couldn't care less what it means, but she enjoys lazily shuffling the broad cards, holding them in her hands, and looking at the beautifully drawn characters. The lovers, the magicians, 
the fool. She smiles as her fingers caress their warm edges. With her other hand, the fortune teller fingers a cigarette, twirling but not lighting it. She will smoke it later when she has reason to. Beyond the thick drapes of her tent, she can hear the madness of the boardwalk carnival, the joyful shouts and tinny mechanical music. But the sounds are muffled, and she feels at peace within her private space. She glances at her watch. It's after midday. Tucking a cigarette back in its case, she throws some colored veils over her head and puts on a few more rings. A couple salted peanuts chased with a swig of warm diet coke and a stick of gum, and she's ready. Ready for more of the questions she's been fielding all morning, those hopeful voices desperate to know what their futures will hold. Always the same questions, never the ones they should be asking. Questions they already know the answers to. She pushes through the curtain and into the booth, cracking her gum and blinking in the sunlight. The boardwalk is busy today, but no one stops in her tent. She's situated along the main route, so from her perch between symmetrical velvet drapes, she can see a fairly large expanse in either direction, including a slice of glittering ocean. The fortune teller shuffles for a few moments in silence, watching the crowd. Parents corral their overstimulated children, then from 18 to 80 valiantly attempt to win neon stuffed animals for their women. Snacks are gobbled up, spilled on the ground, tread on by hordes of hurried feet. The same scene day after day, the fortune teller cracks her gum again. To her left stands a man shaped like a circus tent, stuffing a hot dog in his mouth and providing a large amount of shade to the rest of his family. The wife is wearing a backpack and sneakers, and dark brown boots are showing beneath her bleached hair. She looks as though she doesn't want to know what her future will hold. <laughs> the fortune teller's gaze moves past them to a group of preteens pointing skeptically at her tent. She raises an eyebrow at them, and they laugh and turn away. The fortune teller shuffles her deck extra hard. What are these kids doing at the pier by themselves, anyway? Her roving eyes land on a family. A young woman in a floppy drawstring hat is barely holding on to her slumming son, who is clutching a massive pot of pink cotton candy. His mother, efficiently licking her left thumb, attempts to wipe it off his cheek, but succeeds only in smearing it further. The cherubic child is not deterred and aims the fluffy pink mountain at his face again. His sticky hands wipe at his white shorts, what a mistake that was, and blue and white striped sailor shirt. It can even be seen in his golden locks as he brushes the sparkly pink sugar from his eyes. Grabbing fistfuls, he laughs delightedly. What fun! And look how it dissolves the syrup in his hands. He stomps his tiny feet in excitement. The fortune teller leans forward slightly, her eyes locked on the boy. Carnival games were in dame. Children scream as the roller coaster shudders around another bend. Such pure joy is spread across the boy's tiny features. Did she ever look like that? She closes her eyes, and for a moment she can feel her small hand and her mother's rough one again. Fingers spread as her mother reads her palm. Patiently sitting on the threadbare velvet couch, they rescued from a traveling antique show. Little legs kicking as the long fingers trace lines on her hand. She can see her grandmother's disapproving face in the doorway. Feel the rumbling hunger in her stomach. She hears the echo of her mother's silvery voice. You'll know when your destiny arrives. Your fate will find you. The fortune teller is lost for a few minutes in the images she has tucked away for years, in the mantras her mother saying like lullabies in her ear. The young boy's mother seems to give up and looks to her husband, who is looking to a gaggle of lotioned and leopard girls posing for an old-fashioned camera. All bikini strings and pouty lips. The fortune teller watches the father watching the girls. Does one of them remind him of an old girlfriend, perhaps from his youth? Is he wondering what she's doing now? Does she have a tiny son of her own covered in pink sugar? The mother sighs and waves her hand like, hello, your son is turning into a human candy cane. <laughs> the father snaps to attention, picks up his small son who shrieks in protest and carries him off to get cleaned up. The mother calls after the tangle of retreating limbs, hey, where's Clover? From the worry on the mother's face, the fortune teller knows Clover wasn't supposed to go off on her own, but she must be that age. The mother looks hurt. They used to be close, the fortune teller muses. Maybe they made forks together, whispered secrets, ate cereal out of the box. The fortune teller sees on her face the sting of being shut out by your teenage daughter after many years as confidant and co-conspirator. The eyes of a mother unwilling to accept the passage of time. If the fortune teller knows anything, it's the time passes whether you want it to or not. She shuffles her deck slowly, the cards falling from one hand to the other. Then, closing the curtains of her booth, the fortune teller steps outside and lights a cigarette. How careless, she thinks, losing her daughter in a crowd, even if she is the type to wander away without warning. 
A mother should be better tuned to the movements of her children. After all, dangers are lurking everywhere. You don't need to be a real fortune teller to know that, and in fact she isn't. Her red hair is dyed from a cheap box, and she toasted her deck of cards with a lighter to make them look old. She's from Nevada and grew up on a ranch. The fortune teller kicks at a balled up foil wrapper and takes another grab. No sooner does the mother disappear down the pier in search of her daughter than the freshly scrubbed boy and his father return to what appears to be the family's designated meeting point. Looking around and finding the mother absent, the father leans back on a bench and takes in the scene, holding his son's hand loosely at his side. The fortune teller watches the father side-eye that same girl, blatantly staring now as if there's no one else around, as if he doesn't have charge of the now squirming child who has spotted the cotton candy tent again, little feet already stomping in anticipation of the fluffy delights ahead. Presumably lost in memories, the father doesn't notice when his son wiggles out of his hand and runs off down the boardwalk. The fortune teller steps into his path. Where are you going all by yourself? Trusting child that he is, the boy gives a dummy smile and points to the cotton candy tent. Well, says the fortune teller, pinching his rosy cheek. That can be arranged. <laughs> reader is Heather John Fogarty. After growing up in Napa Valley, Heather relocated to Los Angeles, where she has lived for the past two decades, working as a writer and editor. Her writing has appeared in Marie Claire, Australian Vogue, the Los Angeles Times, and has been featured on NPR. Tonight she'll be reading from her thesis, a novel titled Safe House, a dual narrative about a Hancock Park mother who is a, who is a victim of a home invasion and an East Hollywood teenage boy who is implicated in said crime. Safe House is not only a slice of Los Angeles micro-communities, but a reflection of the complicated world that is America in 2018, where social, racial, and economic classes collide, and where the best intentions are revealed to be anything but. Let's welcome Heather. I um, have a little more tarot when you hear people, so um, <laughs> bear with me. I'm going to read from the midsection of the novel, where Magda, the victim of a violent crime, ventures out to a neighbor's house for a new moon goddess circle. And the gardener is from Mexico she's accused of attacking her is in jail. Magda stepped out onto a stone patio, behind which a swath of grass ran alongside a lap pool with spigots spilling water onto its rippled surface. Large plants with Jurassic leaves filled borders. Woody creeping fig covered garden walls. The new moon hung high like a shadow above them in an indigo night sky, casting a faint glow on the swimming pool. A patchwork of Mexican blankets formed a seating area on the lawn, at the center of which Tiffany had placed a brass tray with crystals, a tarot deck, a stack of cards and writing utensils, and a candle in a jar that splintered off warm light across the blankets. Magda thought about Uriel. She imagined his boots shackled together as he sat on a cold bench in a jail cell, and she took a sharp breath. It's a little windy out here, Sally said, pulling her cashmere around her. Wouldn't it be awful if we did this inside, or is that not the point? Yeah, the winds are hell on my sinuses, said another woman. I wouldn't mind going inside. What do you think, Tim? <coughs> Tiffany shrugged and began picking up pillows. The other woman stooped to help her move blankets and crystals back into the house, depositing them in a room at the center of which sat a low-slung circular table lined with votives. Tiffany ignited a long fire match and touched it to the candle wicks, and when she was finished, she turned off all overhead lights. The pool shimmered outside, and she opened a window. Crickets chirped in the waxen leaves, and for a moment, Magda forgot they were sitting in the middle of the city. We have some new faces tonight, Tiffany began, nodding at Magda. To welcome everyone, I wanted to start by talking about tonight's new moon circle intention, which is courage. The women murmured their approvals of the theme, and Magda felt a distinct dread that she would be expected to talk about the man with a gun. The group lowered itself around the table, and Tiffany disappeared outside, returning with a large, smooth stick wrapped in strands of leather and fur. Feathers dangled from its grips like dream catchers. It was exquisite, this muscular and totemic staff, and Magda felt blasphemous in its presence, like taking communion without confession first wrongly accused. She replayed his voice in her head at the top of the stairs, in the crosswalk. It was him, wasn't it? This is a safe space for women for our voices to be heard, Tiffany continued. 
I know we all love to chit-chat in this group. The women like this, and there is something laughter echoed off smooth plaster walls. But the circle is not a conversation. We'll do that later, Tiffany continued. We're here to share our stories, and so that we don't interrupt each other, I'm hoping we can honor this Native American tradition where you say ho, which means I hear what you're saying, <laughs> and the truth has been spoken. It's also short for we're all connected and can relate. <laughs> Tiffany knelt down and picked up the small stack of note cards and pencils, handing them to the architect to pass around. She explained that they were to set their intentions for the evening by writing down ways in which they felt they might be more courageous. She then lifted the brass tray, which was in fact a gong, and drummed it, gen drummed it gently with a mallet, pronouncing the circle sealed. A cool breeze rustled through the window, but even so, Magda's face flamed, and she wondered again, was it him? The architect rose from her seat onto her knees, extending her reach for the staff. The crowd felt silent once more as she began to speak. I'm Sarah. I'm here tonight without my partner Lex, who I know wishes she could be among this incredible group of women. Here she smiled, and how beautiful she looked. A smattering of dark freckles across her light brown skin, her hair wrapped in a red headscarf. I don't take for granted how lucky I am to be an openly gay woman in Los Angeles with a wife and two beautiful daughters but I've been thinking a lot about the courage it takes to live authentically in other parts of the country. How I'm able to hold my wife's hand in public without worrying that we may get beaten up, or worse, shot for dancing together in a nightclub because we dare to ask the same freedom as everyone else. And so, what resonates for me when I hear courage is authenticity. A series of hoes rippled throughout the group, the women easing into the candlelit confessional of the circle. And Magda was startled to see Tiffany now standing above her, holding the staff outstretched for her to receive. She took the stick and smoothed her fingers over its surface. All heads turned to her, and her heart started to pound. Surely it would be understood, forgiven, she passed the stick to her neighbor. She could not bring herself to speak, to offer herself like carrion to these women. And yet all eyes remained on her, ready to devour her confession. She couldn't do it. What was your intention of convincing a word you like? Tiffany coaxed, gesturing to the note cards. At the beginning of the exercise, Magda had been nervous, searching to write down something that didn't feel like total horseshit. But as she now mentally replayed the one word she had scribbled onto her card, it sounded completely disingenuous. Authenticity, she said, immediately realizing she had repeated what Sarah had said. It wasn't even her own word. Why had she said it? Why was she here? If she got out now, she would look ridiculous, hysterical. She was still holding the stick. Ha, Sally said sarcastically. The other women refrained from speaking, instead exchanging conspiratorial glances ripe with disapproval. Oh, <laughs> this is a safe place and it takes courage to share. When we are present in the circle, we're experiencing oneness that reminds us who we are, one human race, one global village. I was attacked, Magda said, and she could feel the discomfort in the circle. Their glances shifted from each other to the floor. It was bad, she said, feeling her hands tense around the staff. A man is in jail. Whether she liked it or not, she had their attention now. This was the moment to confess, but to confess to what? Why did she feel like the one who had committed a crime? She had been attacked, knocked unconscious, robbed. Without warning, the, flash, the floodlights flashed on, startling Tiffany, who whispered, Motion detectors. Uriel hadn't done it. She knew this instantly and completely. He was in jail and he didn't do it. Oh, God, the man with the gun was still out there. Was he here now? Had he been watching them? Holy shit, Sally gasped, pointing towards the back of the garden. Magda squinted to make out a pack of three coyotes standing atop the garden wall like conjured apparitions, their eyes gleaming like incandescent bulbs in the darkness ears pricked. Nobody moved, Tiffany snapped. The women jumped to their feet and hurried to the window. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Next we have B.A. Williams, a queer writer and performer from East Long Beach. Her work in writing and performance seeks to uplift communities of color, redefining otherness while distributing intersectionality in art and beyond. She's the co-curator and host of Unfadeable, the Requiem of Sandra Bland, 
an ongoing performance and workshop series hosted by Art Chair LA. In addition to Literary Arts Director of Art, Ra Art Realm LB, a Long Beach seasonal art show for artists of color and those who identify with underground culture. B.A. will be reading from her thesis, a novel titled The Blue Line, about a black queer woman who returns to Long Beach, CA, after college, hoping to start a new life, only to find that her complicated past prevents her from moving forward. B.A.'s work is deeply personal and seeks to not only scramble our perceptions of black queer women, but to understand the simultaneous specificity and universality of these experiences. Let's welcome B.A. Um, so I'll start off with, this is a trigger warning to all my black girls. Judy's grandma, Brenda, had washed, conditioned, detangled, and plaited Judy's hair. A combination of leave-in conditioner and water dripped down Judy's forehead. She sat at the dining room table trying to recover from the battle between Brenda's heavy-handedness and her tight curl pattern. Her scalp and temples throbbed. Brenda had raked through small sections of Judy's wet hair with a comb that had teeth the size of rulers and ignored Judy's pleas to stop or wait a minute. It was Judy's fault, it hurt. She shouldn't have been tenderhead. <laughs> Judy's sister Monique danced in the hallway with her damp braids aligned on both sides of her face like thick black pillars smiling. Monique had finer hair. Her white daddy had blessed her. She had good hair, the kind Brenda loved to talk about. Judy and Monique would have to wake up early the next morning to get their hair blow-dried and pressed. Judy flinched as she thought about the smoky metal comb and its heat as it neared the back of her neck. She shivered at the thought of the piping hot comb working its way to the hair near the back of her ears. She moaned as she thought about Brenda straining her baby hair along the edges of her head. Brenda claimed Judy's hair held heat. That's what Judy felt. Bullshit. <laughs> but when it was all over, Judy knew she'd rush to the bathroom and turn on the beauty lamps above the mirror and pray that she would sweat out her press and curl. Now it was Judy's sister, Tierra's turn to be transformed into decency. After Tierra's pre-wash, Brenda guided Tierra to the hair chair position in the middle of the kitchen. A burgundy towel with a bleach stain on one end was wrapped around Tierra's shoulders. Tierra sucked her index finger and twisted the ends of her reddish-brown hair with her free hand. Her big lips drooped into a frown. Instead of shrinking and forming into an afro like Judy and Monique's hair, Tierra's hair looked like a mop and stopped at her earlobes. Water clung to Tierra's strands of hair like beads to a braid. The Just For Me box stood out between the main Intel product, a black girl with bangs, Shirley Temple curls, and a butterfly barrette smiled on the box. She looked like a cousin or a long-lost sister. Brenda tore off the top of the box, ripping the black girl's face in half. Then Brenda poured a green liquid into a clear jar filled with white cream. She used a hair applicator brush to mix. Judy wiped her brow with the back of her hand as she watched Brenda work in the kitchen. Tierra's toes bent downward and upward, down and up as she waited. Brenda mixed and mixed and mixed until it was time to add a golden oil to the light green combination in the jar. Brenda squeezed all the oil into the jar. Without looking, Brenda placed the empty oil bottle on the counter's edge. The bottle fell. Shit! Judy, come pick this up for me. Brenda mixed some more. Judy walked over, picked up the empty bottle, and looked inside. A small amount of oil had escaped and dripped down to the side of it. Judy placed the bottle back on the counter and rubbed the slick oil between her thumb and middle finger. Judy looked inside the jar. The mixture looked like frosting. Girl, if you don't go sit yourself down somewhere, Judy rolled her eyes and sat back at the dining room table. I don't get why we need to even do all this for Easter. All we're going to do is sit in church. Monique twisted her neck back and forth in the hallway. Small drops of water flickered into every direction. First of all, as long as y'all living in this house, y'all going to abide by my rules. And second, this ain't no damn Easter. Our father died on the cross. This is Resurrection Sunday. You know I don't celebrate no damn Easter. Brenda dipped the brush into the frosting and slapped the glob along the edges of Tierra's hair. Still, I don't get it. Why do we need to get all fancy for the Lord? I thought he loved us no matter what. So why do we need to get our hair done and wear new clothes? Shut up, sit there, and be a child. Monique skipped down the hallway singing the Just For Me theme song. 
I want style, body and shine, a look that's totally all mine, hair so soft, silky and free. I want something just for me, just for me. Judy joined in with the last three words, just for me. Tira wiped her finger on her thigh. Stop singing that song. Why? Judy asked. Tira dropped her head and Brenda slapped the back of her neck. TT, yo asked me to sit still so I can get this in right. Brenda yanked Tiara's head back by her hair. Tiara's eyes were closed, but tears outlined her short eyelashes. You and Mo are making fun of me. No, I'm not. I like that song. Y'all, shut up. Tiara, now hold still. I don't want to get this on your skin, but you're putting it in her hair, Judy said. Look, watch your goddamn mouth, TT. Ain't got no good hair like you and Mommy. I'm trying to help her out now. Tiara closed her eyes again. A slender tear glided down the side of her nose. Why was Tiara crying? She didn't have to deal with Brenda's heavy hand tugging at the roots of her hair. She didn't have to wake up early the next morning to get her hair blow-dried and pressed. By now, all Tiara's hair was separated and coated at the roots with the cream. Now don't touch it. Let me know when it starts to burn. Brenda started cleaning. Tiara's legs swung violently in the chair and made a creaking noise like it had loose screws. Tiara played with the strings of the seat cushion with one hand and sucked her finger with the other. She swung her legs as if she were on a swing, trying her hardest to get higher and higher. Brenda washed the jar clean. The chair wobbled like an off-balance tower of blocks. Brenda rinsed the thin brush. Tiara removed her finger from her mouth and her small hands managed to grip both the cushion and the wood seat. Tiara squeezed. She wiggled her hips. She shook her head. It hadn't been more than a few minutes before Tiara screamed out, it's burning, it's burning. Now, T.T., it ain't been in there long enough. The box says it's supposed to be in there for a little bit longer. No, Grandma, it's really burning. Tara started crying, her hips still moving left and right. Her legs curled around the legs of the chair now. Tara looked like she wanted time to stop. Brenda, take it out of her head. She's crying. Look, it's probably because you washed it first. Judy stood up, pointing at Tara's scrunched up face. Judy, how many times do I have to tell you to mind your own goddamn business and stop telling me what to do? You ain't about to disrespect me in my house. Brenda walked up to Judy, fists balled up. They stared into each other's eyes. I don't know who the hell you think you is, but you best sit down. You ain't too big to get your ass beat, Brenda said through her teeth. Judy looked at the floor, dropped some creamy looking water, trickled onto her feet. Judy sat down hard, hating that she did because it hurt, hating that her height didn't matter, hating that Brenda didn't fear her. So Judy stared back at Brenda hoping her eyes could dig into Brenda, but Brenda's eyes swallowed Judy whole, so she cut her glance short. Monique danced and hopped, still singing in the hallway. I still don't get it, Judy started again, staring at Monique, hoping Monique felt Judy's eyes reaching out to constrain her. Judy wanted Monique to stop moving, to stop being so damn happy to grow the fuck up. Tiara's hurting. That stuff in her head is hurting her. Why won't you take it out? Why does she have to go through all this for church? There was a violent crack and boom behind Brenda. Brenda turned, Judy gasped. Tiara was screaming at the top of her lungs. The chair's legs had snapped in pairs. Two of the legs were on top of the kitchen mat with the rooster on it, and the other two near the dishwasher. The back of the chair and seat were still connected. Tiara's hands were still clenching onto the cushion and the bottom of the seat. She squirmed like a cockroach on his back, and as she did this, her hair painted the floor white. Judy was afraid of what was going to happen next, but she knew. She knew that Tiara's screaming had gone mute in Brenda's ears. She knew Brenda only saw a broken chair. She knew Tiara's head would continue to burn until Tiara answered Brenda's question, what the fuck were you doing? As Brenda collected the legs of the chair, Judy jumped up and grabbed Tiara. Judy pulled her crying sister down the hallway, pushing past Monique. She turned the bath handle to the right. The ice cold water rushed out of the grimy faucet. She grabbed Tiara's head between her hands and said, stop, please, stop crying, please. Tiara's scream quieted down and sounded more like an old hymn in a church. Judy hurried and baptized her sister's burning scalp into the water. Brenda's footsteps echoed from the hallway. She was coming. Judy rubbed and rubbed and rubbed the cream out of Tiara's hair. Just as Judy pulled the coughing Tiara up from the water, Brenda snatched Judy's arm. Thank you. Holly Sutton, who is a Los Angeles-based writer originally from Northern California. 
Her work has been featured in Rose Red Review and Beyond Science Fiction, among others, and she is a fiction editor for literary journal Monday Night. Hallie will be reading from her thesis, the novel The Lady Upstairs, a new take on Hollywood noir and the oddity of this city, two subjects that are very dear to her. In my readings, The Lady Upstairs is a kind of awakening of neo-noir, an oftentimes funny thriller that frequently has readers wondering not only who done it, but how in the hell did such a wild story like this come to be? Let's welcome Hallie. Thank you, Kaya. So I'll be reading from the beginning of the book, and I think the only thing you need to know is that uh, the characters in the scene, Joe, Lou, and a man named Robert Jackal, work at a blackmail agency run by a woman they know as the Lady Upstairs. Lou picked the bar, not far from the water, so we were only melting by inches and not by feet. I met her there, a tiny hole-in-the-wall terror of a tiki bar, walls painted a ghastly labial pink, canned thrums of an absent ukulele clogging the air. The floor was an old scuffed wood, tilted to the left like a drunken sailor. Tiny little fairy lights crisscrossed an exposed wooden beam. Lou had a knack for finding the last place I'd ever want to go. It was still prime drinking hours for a certain kind of crowd, but there were only a few people seated around little half-moon tables which were strewn with fake flower lays and gold doubloons and cocktails that looked like technicolor disasters. Lou sat at a table, uncluttered by other admirers, legs crossed and angled towards the door, studying the scene. She was one of those beautiful women who never took much care of her face at all, and the humidity had caused her mascara to bloom under her eyes, and her bright copper hair was damp, damp at the temples, sleek to the touch like an otter's pelt. The heat had softened her like warmed chocolate. Here's my idea of a good bar, a clean, ill-lighted space. No pink drinks, no hula statuettes. But this bar had Lou. She looked up, saw me, smiled. <coughs> Sorry, excuse you. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> the drink in front of her was so orange it glowed, turning the underside of her chin the color of a sunrise. It looked like the sort of drink that made you hug strangers before you hugged a toilet. Is it spring break already? I asked as I slid into the seat across from her, catching the glass with the tip of my finger and stealing a sip from her straw. An, exposure of sh an explosion of sugar and foam and one sickly zing of rum down my throat. For three dollars a pop, I think you can rewire your palate, she said, grabbing the little purple umbrella from the glass and tucking it behind my ear. I ordered you the bombs away, Lou said. Oh, you ordered for me. You'll like it, Lou assured me. You know what I'd say to Jackal if he ordered a drink for me? Just decided what I'd have without asking? Lou dimpled. I have some idea. You'll drink it because I'm buying. She took another sip of her cocktail. Do you like the place? Hate it. <laughs> a briny waitress plopped a disturbingly pink mug in front of me. Bombs away! <laughs> she said with a smoker's edge to her voice. <laughs> I sniffed it. Grapefruit and something that made my tongue curl. I took a sip and my suspicions were confirmed. Mezcal. Smoky and bitter and juicy. In spite of myself, I liked it. Not bad, I said to Lou. You love it, she said. See? I know you better than you think I do. Does the lady have you on a new case? I haven't seen you in, what, a week? Nine days, to be precise. Lou shrugged. Nothing definite yet. Not a new case. Not exactly, she said. I'll be done with Ellen soon. If you wanted to introduce me to the lady upstairs, I could help you with whatever you need for the new one. Think of it, I said, taking another long sip, us working together again. I told you, it's not a new case. Lou stared at my face for a moment and then reached out with one finger and gently tapped the corner of my mouth. A bead of sweat traced down my spine, tickling. Is that a new lipstick, Lou said? Her hand retreated. I dipped my head into my drink and resisted the urge to swipe at my lips. Behind Lou, two people stood up and moved to the bar. The man went to put his hand on the small of the woman's back, but she scurried forward without letting him touch her. Not a good sign. Some days I do dress like a woman, I said. Some days, Lou said with that easy laugh. Oh, come on, you. Got all dressed up on my account? I shrugged. I might be paying Jackal a visit later. 
And it was true. I might do that. There were many things I might do later that evening. Always a thing for the bad boys, Lou teased. What use to either one of us have for boys? I said, making her smile. Another drink? I untucked myself from my stool. Lou shook her head. I'm done with paying. She rolled her shoulders and took a long, languid look around the bar. She spotted him, the same man I picked up earlier, and flicked her eyes at me. A challenge. A game we played before. Batter up, she said, and leaned forward and tapped my arm. Tag, you're it. The spot burned through my dress, and I had to keep myself from rubbing it. Lou told me she didn't keep score, but that was bullshit. I was currently up three drinks on her, but it had taken nearly three years to get there. I sucked at the ice in my glass, trying to get one more sip of mezcal, liking the fiery burn of it in my nose, and zeroed in on the man. He was still talking to the woman, but his eyes found me, gave me an appreciative once over. If I was a kinder woman, I'd tap her on the shoulder and tell her to keep moving. Instead, I smiled, looked away, looked back, smiled again, strutted to the bar to order another drink. But Lou bumped him from behind, and the amber liquid in his glass flashed up into his nose. I whipped my head towards her, surprised. She'd moved faster than I expected. She wasn't letting me win. Oh, I'm so sorry, she said, all big eyes and innocence. Her fingers lingered on his sleeve, and she gave his date a sympathetic smile. Did I spill your drink? We would stay for two drinks, slipped onto his tab, only long enough for the bartender to get comfortable putting our beverages under his name. By that time, he'd be slurring, and his date would be as possessive as if she actually liked him. Soon Lou and the girl were old friends, and I was flirting like there were more than drinks on the line. But even as I did, I couldn't stop myself from listening to Lou. I was laughing too much, and I didn't care. The date excused herself to go to the restroom, and the man leaned into Lou, shrugging his weight onto her shoulders and draping a hand across her knee. Without losing a beat, Lou shifted her attention to me and clutched my chin, drawing me in for a kiss. It wasn't a regular part of our routine, and I could feel my heart thud as, my, as her nails scraped lightly against my jaw. Her lips were soft like lips, and her tongue slid in between my teeth. She was selling it more than I was. I kept my hands to myself and my eyes closed and tried not to think of anything. After a few moments, she uncorked her mouth from mine with a pleasant little pop. Lou smiled at the man who was watching the two of us slack jaw. So that's how it goes, he said, breathing into his glass of scotch. Lou winked at him. That's how it goes. Thank you, Harry. Next we have Angelina Sines, a poet born and raised in urban Los Angeles. Her work focuses on memory, mujeres, and motherhood, in addition to the cultural and linguistics un unfoldings of life. Her writings have appeared in Dialogo, Split the Rock, and out of anonymity, among others. Signs is a full-time public school teacher in Highland Park, and she hosts the monthly reading series La Palabra, also in Highland Park. Tonight she'll be reading from her thesis, a collection of poetry titled Edgecliff, a work that interrogates the lingering effects of her childhood experiences of growing up in Silver Lake on her adult life today. I liken her work to warm soup to nourish the Angelina soul on a cold, windy night, something so specific to her life, yet approachable to anyone who has lived and loved and created in this city. Let's welcome Aunt Helena. Okay. So it was very interesting, my poems are about this neighborhood. Uh, it was very interesting to drive here down sunset. Um, there are no coincidences. <laughs> Humidity transports me to dusty brick homes, dirt roads, moist sunrise, rooster calls, dogs roaming on roofs, Tutepic Nayarit. Neighbors in my tia's living room, Tiendita. Quiero, they shout. I turn in the damp sheets. Muffled voices in the kitchen. Clinging of dishes, fans soft whir, ease me into waking hours. My uncle paces in and out of the room, judging my lazy Yankee ass for still being in bed at 6 a.m. Neighbors sweep their patch of the sidewalk as dark men in thin button-up shirts and sooty slacks, cracked feet in worn huaraches, 
load up their triciclos de carga. Elote, helados, tamales, frutas, flores. Humid day unites with unforgiving tropical sun. The sun angrily shines on our walk along uneven sidewalks and cobblestone road. Human mass on the bus radiates moisture. The deaf and mute guitarist plays random strings and screams from the top of his lungs into my hot ears. Bolas de limón nos refrescan la sombra de los guayabos en la plaza central. Nos subimos a un taxi, ventanas, medias abiertas, nubladas por la humedad. Humedad, parallel dimension. And I'm not talking about down. I'm not talking about Seattle, San Sebastián, San Francisco. I'm talking about tropical humidity. When it is not humid, my feet are on the ground. I am working, mothering, writing, hustling. But this morning, I am waterside in Miami. The mist crawls across the ocean as humidity wraps my heart in banana leaves. Guerrilla family, apartment 16, married, father who provides for his family, stay at home mom. My mother hated them. <laughs> they pass by our front door with armloads of groceries. There go the fucking gorillas, mom would call, as they heaved up the steps at our front door. Yeah, fuck those slobs, we respond from kitchen table where Monopoly was being played. In the parking lot, their brand new 1982 Burgundy Monte Carlo mocked our sickly green 1975 Ford Pinto. Their footsteps above would trigger mom into a rage of banging the next 100 dents into our ceiling with loyal broomstick. Every time DCFS showed up to ask, do you have enough to eat? Are you ever alone? Does your mother hit you? Is there anything you'd like to tell me? Yes, no, no, no. Mom swore it was the guerrillas who had called, and she plotted her next revenge against them. They lived above us for seven years until we were evicted. 3 a.m. Wednesday, July 29th, 1981. TV on, lights a front door, open to the cool dawn. Neighbors fill our dining table with matrimonial offerings. Mom provides the coffee. It's Princess Diana's wedding. <laughs> Brown, black, white single mothers, all on food stamps, riveted as Diana waves from glass carriage. Her stoic chiseled jaw and blonde feathered hair woos them. 25 foot long wedding gown train dreamily arranged on the steps. Camera zooms into Diana smiling at the mouth of Westminster Abbey. She is only a few years younger than all of the women gathered in my living room, but the women talk about Diana as if it is their own daughter getting married. Sweeping camera shots, Central London, Thames, Tower Bridge. None of these women will ever know these places, but I will. Mm -hmm. The day I told you I was selling my house and moving into a condo, you cried. We don't give up our land, mija. This is all my fault. I don't want the boys living in an apartment. Is it your debt? In my usual nonchalant manner that drives you fucking crazy, I answer, Dad, it's a condo, it's not an apartment. <laughs> you ignore me, begin migrant labor camp story. Mija, there's rape, murder, knives, blood, abuse. You don't know what I've seen cuando la gente se encima. You plead, no apartment building. You need a house space and walls to keep everyone away. I rock in the recliner, ocean breeze and chimes fill the silence. It's a fucking condo dad, <laughs> not a migrant labor camp. 
City of Cudahy, apartment complex on Florence near Atlantic. Sitting in a circle drinking. He says, those pussies from Bellevue Street Gang. She says, yeah, fuck those putos. Which putos, he asks, smiling. Bellevue Street Gang, she answers. Who? He asks again. Bellevue Street, she repeats. And then he punches her in the face. She falls back. Don't ever say their name again, bitch. Five seconds of collective disbelief and a sense of injustice and entrapment. And then the party goes on. Mexican children know the sizzle. In the corral, playing with sticks in the dirt, gathering leña for the next day's stove, cleaning beans in a Whittier kitchen, talking shit on the steps with your homies, or reclined on the designer sofa, iPad in hand, playing Roblox. When we hear the sizzle, someone who loves us is making us sopita. We know what happened just before. Someone was frying rice or noodles. We know what was happening in that moment. They were pouring water over those noodles, creating the sizzle. And we knew that now they were adding tomato sauce, chicken bouillon, maybe some potatoes, perhaps half an onion. And they were bringing it to a slow boil until the noodles are tender and our sopita is ready to be eaten. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Newton Garner, who is, in his own words, an American poet born on a Sunday. Tonight, Newton will be reading from his thesis, titled Early, specifically from the second section of the piece. The work is about a lot of things, primarily self-preservation, recovery, and the reconciliation of the self under and during, under and after duress. Excuse me. Let's welcome Newton. Hi, everybody. Um, I thought I'd kill the nerves with a small joke before I began, so... <laughs> I pull back to you by tether, and I can no longer tell whether either of us is material. Did I leave, or was I lost? I can be only where you place me. Boxcars parked a long time, a long time. Dressed up, full-spring dolls, houses, closed-off call centers. Yes, I received your echoes. Yes, I received your echoes. How can I? I wouldn't know how. Tether to you, electric, lungs bellow, antenna up the filament between us. I remember I and sparingly. Permutations of this technique, how we have communed. You caught it a few. Terry, you took in you. You are not a black hole. You pause at the mirror, who are you? But light escapes and passes through. Refraction, after image, mirage, mimic. Shocking the body, body automata to remind yourself. Function, process. Feedback for the hands bitten. The path back circuitous non-promenade, illuminated heat map of unkempt wounds, markers of locked rooms I wake in while you wonder why you are third party to your own dreams. I see I see you, I pull from the pyre, in dilations of time with each wink of your eyes. I'm here when I'm not. Pinch, punch, punish, pull, facilitize yourself to our binds, tug eyelids and reveal our strained limits. Touch cheek, lips, nose, tender they are your own. I see the body down below with its face like mine, mouth like mine, ears like hair like nails like gut like mine. Does it feel facile to you that we might realign? I'm here when I'm not. I wake when you sleep where distance is a passing cognition, recognition, filtered encumbrance, distresses membrane, body protein, shape of the vortex, coiling to recover waves of silk to sift auspice, something similar, some semblance of the errant vessel for testament, a smudged history went up. When you sleep, I wake where there's a checkerboard floor, fish tank, a ho-hum megatorium, bland side effect of overstimulation and exorcism unimaginative. Claustrophobic cabins, apartments stalked by madmen, a slow ride, a slow dive to the low nights, the same old nightmares, same old places, same old, same old interstices of every day. I wake where mud for claims, where earth bakes, where you feel safe and losing a name, where you lose you in a deluge, every sense sensation the null, I walk where hell full of rain flurries, pattern the terms of a barter between nymphs and roots, the meter of respite and introspect, in book for the cicada song. My shell is my husk is my home, is from where I go from here. Where do I know myself, my sap, my sustenance, when most of my life has been so slow for fear? 
where in you, where in you do we overlap? Does you become I, become I, does us, does we, to what end? I pull, I pull the tail of a passing comet. Pass me, pass you, pass I, pass I, pull the tail of a passing comet. Pulls apart the slip of skin. Fold and fold, to fold, to fold, to fold. Dog ear, heart, fortune teller. Inert flesh of my own arm over armature. A1 sub 1, upper. A1 sub 2, 4. A1 sub 3, hand. H sub T, H sub 1, H sub 2, H sub 3, H sub 4. I take my other hand and rush and tie the tail of the tail together with my plasma. One palm parts, one palm red. I take my hands together against 3,000 degrees back to you, stretch across X thousand miles, plain, plainer, as if this is how it will always be at the convergence of always seems, until the sun crashes down on your pride, the horizon, the sense of you before you were I, I, me. With a gust carrying every sensible, every senseless wisdom whispered into it, some carried from muffled frustration, seeped out into pitch night. Some marginalia, or idiolalia, our codex for our tachyonic cause, the sum of all fears, all parts, the sun, the sum of the gutter. Down from Appalachia, down from the Smokies, down from Rangitoto, down from there, the wind will blow an eyelash back to you. The wind will come to blows, the wind will come. We can only be here together, yet here we are. We pull we from the pyre, the glint of winking sand, white sand beach, stretching endlessly nowhere. In the child's pose, your body by suspended empty pier in an interlace of logs, memoirs of growth etched on each surface. We pull we unblemished, face blank and unmarked grave, sleep talker, spilling all your secrets to cinders. Long gone out access codes, compartments shuttered, we should not have. We shudder at the gas to reach heart as it opens again under familiar overcast. The stiffened latissimus quakes with ants testing its tensile strength. The forehead is a one-way door, your stomach, still, the garden of slugs. Perforations along A2 peel from fingertip to armpit to littlest toe, uncover mannequin. A way back in, a way to begin. The sleeves fit us snug enough for you to wake while I pull our leg up like a loose sock. I think I feel what it is to be you again when our clay sets and slip fills in, cracks as we settle. This is stillness and sunset, a callous after callousness. After carelessness, this is slippage. I, we, me, you, pilot, you, bodysuit, tuned to the fork in our road, the map subsurface here, where our hushing water washes ashore, flake and molts, each a part of you, we, me, shifting toes till all that is left cannot be lost. Thank you. For our final reader, we have Chanel King. who comes from a long line of storytellers. Her work seeks to embody various voices throughout time, history, and space in order to provide perspective and bend and break held knowledge. Chanel has a BA in English with an emphasis on creative writing from San Francisco State University. Tonight she'll be reading from her thesis and novel, Esther Days, the story of a young black woman in the 1940s who moves from Mississippi to New York City against the backdrop of the Great Migration and the dawn of American civil rights. Her work is truly mesmerizing, a personal folding in of American history that investigates how different and the same this country is, all set to melodic personal prose. Let's welcome Chanel. Um, all of these writers coming before, I wasn't going to say any more, but thank you to all of you beautiful writers. So, just to set up the scene here, uh, Esther, who now goes by Joe, is sitting at Danita's house across the street from where her and her cousin Lumi live, smoking a cigarette. A wife. I sat on Danita's stoop as she held the cigarette into her mouth, the only time her hands ever assisted in the process. Danita. How you smoke so many of those all the time? Don't the smell bother the baby? Alma? Not a girl, she fine. A little bit of smoke never hurt no babies. I'm sure some doctor out there would tell us if it did. Plus, <laughs> something about the pool of these eases my nerves. The women at work got me into them. All their men's overseas. They smoke until they get them back, if they get them back. But when Paul comes home, I'll stop. Looking at Danita now, I wonder how she would be if Warren Paul was back. Was I seeing the real her, or did I meet Danita in an extended period of grief that is yet to end? I wondered what Danita looked like happy. 
I wondered if she would giggle with the other women as she worked with them, carry on the ridiculous conversations. What would be different if Paul was here? She looked at me stunned, letting her bottom lip drop almost enough to let the slender cigarette fall out of her mouth. She laughed and then almost suddenly her eyes filled with heavy tears. The moon, the stars, the sun, and the air, everything would be different if Paul was back with me. Everything. We wanted to move to Philadelphia. His kin over there have land and space. The babies can even have their own patch of yard to play in. Could you imagine? Me not having to sort through broken glass bottles and trash to have all that sit in some grass. Not having to sneak over to some white folks' neighborhoods just so she can see what a pretty yard looks like. To have that all in your very own home. Plus, who knows, maybe I could have another baby. Maybe a little girl or a boy even. I bet Alma would love to play with a little brother or sister. I grew up with tons of siblings, every part of the shack, always shaking. Dana looked at me with a cigarette dangling from her mouth. She fixed her hair and untied the work apron she had around her waist. You don't ever talk about them, your siblings. I just know about Francine. Where the rest of them at? I looked at Danita and her cigarette and her shoe. I looked at these things I thought she owned and had and realized she had nothing. Even worse, I had less. I gently grabbed the cigarette from her lips and took a long pull. Smoking always gave me time to think uh, to think of easy, simple answers for complicated questions. Well, the oldest junior, he was a stable hand, just like my pa. He had to something similar, I'm sure. Then I had three silly older brothers, real close in age. We called them the three. They fight in the war, I suppose. I don't like to think about them too much. It hurts a little. I had two sisters, but they uppity somewhere, being beautiful. They didn't even bother giving us an address to write to. We were nothing to them even before my mother died. And that's it. I gave her back the cigarette, it nearing its end, her pulling out a fresh one. She took a long pull and passed the cigarette back to me. Dana let out clouds of smoke as she studied my face. Is your pa still alive? The questions came so suddenly it shook me a little. My eyes darted to the stairs and stoop. I handed the cigarette back to her and looked over to the street at some perky schoolgirls walk walking by. The five of them walked in a tight pack, each holding on to her books and popping gum. One of them was doing her best impression of Starlight Hour. I thought of Pa, but then I thought of Miss Patty's hips, and then her eyes, and then her long, long fingers. Yeah, he's still alive, I think. I never say goodbye to him. The cigarette was handed back to me, and I looked into Dina's eyes. Hers warm, mine empty. She put her arm around me and took a long, deep breath. She was about to say something when we saw a white woman walk down the street. The white woman looked possessed, eyes red and welled up, streaks of makeup down her face. As she walked down the street, Danita and I stopped and looked at her directly. She walked in front of Lumi's apartment. My eyes on accident widened when she turned around and she must have fallen right into them. Without looking at anything else, she walked to me, no, ran to us. I couldn't blink. A frantic white woman was a sight to see. She kept her eyes on me as if warning me not to move. I obeyed, but I wanted to run. As she rushed towards us, Danita stood up and put a cigarette in her mouth, lighting it and then taking a long, slow pull. What's this all about now? Danita said. I'm looking for a woman, uh, a beautiful Negro woman. She wears pretty dresses and does that pretty hairstyle, you know, where you straighten out your hair to look like ours. The white woman's voice was weak and high-pitched. Under her coat, I could see something that looked like a sleeping room. I had a couple of ideas as to who her husband was. Lumi had taken a detour in recent weeks to marry, to marry white men. The white woman saw me eyeing her robe and closed her long coat even tighter. She fiddled with something in her pocket, and I knew it was a weapon. I'm just looking for this woman. I, I just need to talk to her. I just need to ask her some questions. Danita looked at me and then back at the white woman. Ain't a woman like that here, Danita said. The white woman started to cry, her hand now fully lost in her pocket. I know that there's a beautiful Negro who lives in that apartment over there, and I know my husband goes there and fucks that woman, and I know he gives her money, and I want her name. The white woman continued to cry, and I stood up next to Danita, taking a cigarette that she offered me. 
Like she said, ma'am, ain't no white woman like that living here, I said. The white woman continued to cry, her hand still lost in her pocket. Out of it, she pulled a small handgun. Danita and I sat side by side, didn't move one bit. I know, there's a nigger up there fucking my husband. I'll find her, and I'll take care of that bitch. She waved the gun from Danita to me. We still didn't move. Ma'am, you better put that gun away before you do something you can't take back. We in my neighborhood, and I'll personally make sure and fix you up real good. Danita took a step closer to her. The frantic white woman with the small handgun began to shake it even more. Danita got close enough to the frantic white woman and snatched the gun out of her hands. I know she's there. I know she's there. That nigger is sleeping with my husband. It's against the law and all common decency. The frantic white woman crumpled into Danita's arms, sobbing loudly, making me feel terribly uncomfortable in the process. It doesn't look good to see a frantic white woman crying, holding on to a colored woman in her arms, and that colored woman holding on to a handgun. This made me nervous. <laughs> Danita unloaded the handgun, putting the bullets in one pocket and the gun in the other. Go home. Danita pulled away and fixed the frantic white woman's coat. And don't come back here. The frantic white woman stopped crying, looked at Danita, and then turned her eyes to me, searching deep for some sympathy. I had none to give her. She fixed her eyes back to Danita's, mounted her head, and walked away. We sat back down on the stoop, our bodies full of fight. This business your cousin in ain't gonna last forever. I hope you don't get caught in no nonsense like that. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.